Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, you're invited to join our chat room by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. My partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio monitoring the chat room now. So, Rav, say hello to everyone and share your thoughts on last week's show. Well, hello, everyone. Um, Yeah, you catch me a little bit unprepared, don't you? Last week's show, I'm in the chat room talking about this week's show. The premonition code, if you recall. You know, the whole idea of premonitions. Thanks for the prompt. I did need that, actually. (laughs) Um, You know, I think it still leaves the questions wide open. The fact is we do experience these things um, and you have to sift out those events. I mean... As I said last week, I've had dreams that were so very clear, clear. I was positive it was a premonition. I wrote it down fully expecting everything to happen and nothing did. On the other hand, there have been those experiences that you have and you have that thought and it does happen right away. So I don't know. It's interesting anyway. That's, that's as far as I get. <laughs> All right. Okay, I wish to focus today's spotlight on the idea central to some sort of survival following physical death. A new Rasmussen reports national telephone and online survey finds that 62% of American adults believe in life after death. Just 17% do not, but 20% are still unsure if there's an afterlife. That said, teams at San Diego State University, Florida Atlantic University, and Case Western Reserve University found that fewer Americans say they believe in God or pray regularly. Yet more people believe in an afterlife nonetheless. It's a generational thing, it appears, with millennials the least likely generation to say they're religious or to take the Bible literally. There are many ideas about what sort of life after death one might experience. For some, it's intelligence that survives and somehow participates in the whole of intelligence. For others, it's the soul or spirit that lives on in heaven or hell. Still others refuse to accept the idea of heaven or hell and see the entire matter as a life school that through a combination of karma and dharma or some such thing provides us with the ability to work out our errors and progress toward, well, that too differs from nirvana to the presence of a divine being. As regards the soul and spirit, here we also have some confusion. In the Old Testament, spirit is ruach, found some 378 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, and literally meaning breath, wind, etc. Breath itself. This may represent incarnate life, but the term spirit can also be employed in a higher sense. It, it is often used to depict the nature of a non-material God, God the Father, as to his essence, his spirit. He is not a physical or material being. Now, the Hebrew term for soul is nefesh, nefesh, and it is found more than 780 times in the Old Testament. Because of the variety of contextual meanings, it is not always rendered by the English word as soul. The King James Version uses 28 different words by which to translate the original term. Nefesh, therefore, 
signifies different things depending upon the passage in which it occurs. So may signify merely an individual person. The prophet Ezekiel declared that the soul, the person, whose sins will surely die. Or, as Peter would write centuries later, eight souls were saved by water in the days of Noah. However, the most common interpretation defines the soul as having to do with the aspect of man that is characterized by the intellectual and emotional. It is the eternal component of man that is fashioned in the very image of God and that can exist apart from the physical body. We all naturally wish to live on. The idea of simply ceasing to exist at all is frightening to many and most disconcerting to others. Ceasing to exist at all in any way tends to plead for a morbid axiology since our behavior matters only to ourselves. Why not then simply maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain from a purely selfish perspective without regard to life of some form? For me, this selfish perspective loses sight of the most rewarding elements to life. With or without an eternal life, our most treasured moments, those with real meaning, what I've often called a warm, fuzzy feeling, are derived from helping others, from shared love, from compassionate action, from unselfish motives. Those are my thoughts. Anyway, what are yours, Ravinder? You know, I've got lots of thoughts, actually. Um, first of all, just the, the practical side of it. Um, you know, th this idea that people are only good because they have a fear of what happens after they die. Um, you know, that is that is a practical part of it, you know, being good. And Although I obviously believe, and I've said before, that being good for goodness sake is a whole lot better than being good because your God or your teacher or your guru told you to be so. So, I mean, there is the practical side of it. But I've got a question for you that came up as you were reading that. And it's like, well, does belief in a soul really necessitate a belief in God? Why are we saying that the soul is fashioned in the image of God? I just had that question. I have don't have any I haven't gone any further than that it was just it just came to me why I don't think we necessarily when you say we you're talking about everybody yeah and for certain everybody does not believe that the soul is fashioned in the image of God that's a biblical interpretation traditionally it is shared in other religions but it's not shared in all it's not shared in Hinduism as a case in point it's certainly not shared in Buddhism so um, and there are other exceptions as regard to the rest of your question, I think that's something we'll take up with our guest today because I have several questions that I'm going to ask him right along that line. Cool. So I'm not going to jump in and steal his thunder. His book is a fabulous read. The book is The Soul Fallacy, but we'll get to that. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured Dr. Julian Mossbridge. Do you remember her, Ravinder? And we discussed her work and book, The Premonition Code. Mike wrote, if precognition is real, as your guest insists, then our lives are predestined. What does that mean for free will? I can't accept that. Well, we'll discuss some more about free will again today. Uh, so I don't know, Mike. Richard Road, I think our free will is most functionally exercised in managing our subconscious and habituation and managing the input we engage in to prepare the mind to then operate automatically. Thus, feeding one's mind is the most important activity one can engage in. You won't get an exception from me on that one, Richard. Martha wrote, interesting guest, but she seems stuck on herself. Rough start to the interview, and I don't think I understood what she was objecting to. Certainly, there is a difference between precognition and premonition. 
I won't touch that. I think, you know, our guest sent me a letter, an email, I should say, and as did her publisher of apology for how the show started. I accept that letter. I accept her apology. I think, you know, the instance was she somehow thought, well, Ravinder, what did she think? There were some miscommunications before the before we actually went on the air, she actually didn't receive some emails. And so I think she was feeling a little bit put out. So just, just confused. And when you're off balance, these things can happen. So it's fine. It happens. Yeah. It smoothed out very quickly. So it was a very informative show uh, nonetheless. Okay. Moving on. Bryce wrote, I simply must thank you for how you have changed my life. I borrowed your book, mind programming from my dad last summer and thoroughly enjoyed it. The first half scared the bejesus out of me, but the second half was nothing short of enlightening. After reading your book, I was a bit skeptical, so I tossed your CD Serenity with Music on my MP3 player and started listening to it while I studied one day, and within 10 minutes, I felt a warm blanket of relaxation come over me. Needless to say, I studied very well that day. After experiencing that, I thought I would take it to the next level and really put it to a test. So I purchased your Genius Series and listened to them every night for the two weeks preceding the fall semester last year, hoping it would give me an edge on what appeared to be a dawning semester of six classes, many of them senior-level classes. Not only did my reading pace blast forward, but my vocabulary has expanded quite noticeably. My memory expanded, so I was able to directly quote the book during tests, and learning seems to be a drastically simplified affair. I accomplished, I accomplished a 3.8 that semester. Your program didn't simply pass my test. It superseded any expectation I could have imagined. Dr. Taylor, it is simply not possible for me to fully articulate the extent to which you've changed my life. All for the better, too. Now, there's a success story for you, Ram. I love those. And, you know, when it comes to exams and learning, I, you know, we have people that have passed the bar exam it 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 amazes me the difference in a mindset when i find learning fun and i look forward to it how much easier it is how much quicker i remember things as opposed to when i have those oh i've got to learn this and if i don't what if i fail the test and what da 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 you have any thoughts on that I think that's a classic example of self-sabotage. You think of it in that one area, you know, the belief that they're not capable of it causes them to be incapable of it. But it extends to every area of your life. When you believe you're going to fail, well, you've put a roadblock in your own way. That's why we close every show with believing in yourself always matters. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, the soul fallacy, what science shows we gain from letting go of our soul beliefs with Professor Julian Mussolino. I have to tell you, this is a great read. Um, I encourage you all, regardless of what your thoughts are, to get a copy of this because, you know, if we're going to hold to any kind of belief if we're going to live our lives according to anything what we should first realize is that our ability to think to reason is what sets us apart from the rest of of those creatures in the world and not to use that is to turn our back on it and so then we we end up no matter how informed we think we might be because of what we have looked at and chosen to believe, we find that we are not informed and therefore ill-prepared to make wise choices. All right, let me tell you a little about today's guest. Julian Mussolino is a Franco-American cognitive scientist, public speaker, author, and associate professor at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, where he holds a dual appointment in the psychology department and the Center for Cognitive Sciences. Born and raised in France, he studied at the University of Geneva in neighboring Switzerland, 
the University of North Wales, Bangor, and the United Kingdom, the University of Maryland, and the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of numerous scientific articles and is regularly invited to give lectures in the United States and around the world. The aim of his scientific work is to understand the functioning and development of aspects of the human mind, such as language, reasoning, and critical thinking. His research has been funded by the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. Steven Pinker had this to say about the soul fallacy. In the Middle Ages, almost everyone believed in the witch theory of causality, that women cavorting with demons caused disease, disasters, accidents, crop failures, and assorted other maladies and calamities. Today, no one in the Western world believes in witches because the witch theory of causality was replaced by scientific explanations for these assorted happenings. In the soul fallacy, Julian Mussolino does for souls what earlier scientists did to witches. He explains why souls don't exist, then shows that science offers a better explanation for the workings of the mind and other beliefs that souls supposedly explain, and finally offers a deeper, richer, and more fulfilling worldview grounded in science instead of superstition. Close quote. I tell you, whatever you do believe going into this book, it is an inspiring, uplifting book in the way it closes. Okay, on that, let's get the professor in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment. Julian Mussolino. Thank you, Eldon. It's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for this lovely introduction. Oh, it's indeed my pleasure. I really did enjoy your book. I have to tell you that. I, that's you know, that's I, wonderful. Thank you. I, I am one of those that is guilty, I'm afraid, of, <clears throat> of wanting to believe there's something more, <laughs> and, uh, and at the same time, trying to keep my feet grounded based in science and your book is challenging it is exciting it is inspirational i found it to be a super read on that sir yes <laughs> we like to know three things from our guest who is the messenger what is the message and of course how do we use it so to that end what are you passionate about and what led you to writing your new book in general, as a uh, as a scholar, as a scientist, as a as an educator, I'm very passionate about ideas. I'm very passionate about uh, reason, about science, about knowledge, um, and about ways in which these can help uh, make the world a better place. Uh, in a in a very broad sense, I love teaching at Rutgers. I love interacting with students. I love the research that I do, and. Um, what led me to write the book is that I've been working in, as you said, in uh, cognitive science. And uh, when we do this kind of work, we work on questions pertaining to the human mind, what it is and how it functions. And if you think about what we've discovered about the human mind, uh, there are clear implications for questions about the soul, for example. But very few people in my profession there to say what those implications are because they're very controversial. As you said, it's very tempting to think that we have a soul, to think that we might live on uh, when we die. And so I wanted to explore what these implications were and I wanted to think more about the question of the soul and I wanted to share with other people uh, this, as you said, this very positive vision that science offers uh, when we think about who we are and what might happen when we're not here anymore. All right, Professor, you heard today's spotlight. What have I got yes, wrong? Yes, I did. Uh, nothing, the only one thing, <laughs> it, the very, very tiny thing. The lovely quote that you read, uh, to be fair to Steve Pinker, was not Steve's, it was Michael Shermer's. <laughs> but apart from oh, that... Oh, is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, apart from that, I'm on board with everything else. <laughs> Okay, I did. You're right. I did. I missed that. I'm glad you corrected oh, that. Thanks. Perfect. Fine. I, it's, it's I, perfect yeah. Fine. yeah. All right. Well, Michael's been on the show. We haven't been able to get Stephen on the show, but we will here one of these days. Okay. The idea of a soul or spirit, you know, is a religious metaphysical construct. I mean, since the earliest forms of religiosity, such as animism, the idea is that souls inhabit the material word, world, you know, 
we have considered this to be a statement of belief, uh, not a statement necessarily of fact. So as such, how does the idea of the soul become a scientific hypothesis, as you suggest in your book? That's a very good question. Well, I think the first step here is we have to think carefully about what it is that people actually believe when they talk about the soul. And the best way to do that is to find out empirically by asking people what they believe. So that's what I did um, in uh, a few years ago. I started, in fact, I was curious as I was teaching courses in, uh, you know, human psychology, cognitive science. Uh, and in these courses, I never talked, we never talk about the soul. If you take a course in um neuroscience or cognitive science or psychology today at a university, you're not going to hear about the soul, perhaps historically, but people are not, professors are not going to say the soul does this, the soul does that. In fact, everything we say would, it would seem tend to lead to the conclusion that there is no such thing. So I was curious to see what my students actually believed. And so I devised a, uh, a questionnaire that I uh, ran by them. And I asked them, uh, essentially, if they thought they had a soul, I give them a scale as a good psychologist to measure this. And I asked them other questions. And much to my surprise, I discovered that about 80 percent of the um, students in a large undergraduate class uh, picked a value on the scale that suggested that they believed either very strongly or a little less strongly that they had a soul. And then when I looked at the the next questions, they told me what that soul was and uh, I've, I've done this uh, a number of times in, in class, and I, I had uh, students come in the lab. I did an actual formal experiment just to make sure that the results would replicate. And same thing. Um, you mentioned now you mentioned at the beginning of the uh, of the segment uh, uh, data from surveys uh, that you read. And, and indeed, the data I obtained from the students, really uh, match what we know from large-scale surveys from uh, the Gallup organization or the uh, Pew organization that in the U.S. today, a majority of people uh, believe in uh, the soul narrative. So that was the first step. The next step is to then ask, okay, fine, you believe you have a soul. Tell me what it is, what it does, how it functions. Ask questions about, uh, about that. And when you do, you realize that most people believe in a soul that has uh, three kinds of properties. The first is they tell you that the soul is immaterial or non-physical, so different from the physical body. The second is what I call uh, psychologically potent. That's not what they say, but what they say essentially is that their soul does something for them. It gives them uh, their feelings, uh, allows them to make moral decisions, gives them free will, uh, and so on and so forth. So it, it gives them something that is psychological in nature, consciousness even. And the third property is that people believe that the soul is immortal. So in other words, it's going to carry their consciousness uh, into the afterlife. So it, it, it's that notion of a soul with, with these three properties that I, I call the traditional soul because it resembles uh, the Platonic soul, the Cartesian soul, and it's that soul that I think is a scientific hypothesis. And I'm happy to tell you why, but I want to let you uh, jump in if you'd like. Okay, no, I, go ahead. I mean, you've spawned a, a number of questions already for me, but I'll hold okay, them. Why, do, why does that make it a, a scientific hypothesis? Uh, for two main reasons. Uh, the first is that it's really a claim that this traditional soul, again, anchored empirically in what people actually believe. I'm less interested in what religious texts say. I'm really interested in what people believe. Also, I'm less interested in what, say, uh, professional uh, theologians believe. Most people aren't professional theologians. I'm really interested in what most lay people believe. And most lay people seem to believe something like what I just described with these uh, three properties. Now, what makes that kind of soul a scientific hypothesis is First of all, this notion of uh, detachability of the mind, the idea that the mind can operate uh, outside the confines of the body. Indeed, if you believe that your consciousness will go on to live after you die, what, you, what this amounts to believing is that the mind, consciousness, the ability to recognize uh, Uncle Fred in heaven, can function 
once the body has ceased to function? Well, that's a very uh, clear, testable hypothesis. In fact, um, suppose, for example, that we could uh, talk to the dead. I'm not saying we can. There's no evidence whatsoever that we can. But suppose that we could. So suppose that you had uh, Uncle Fred's ashes in an urn. So you'd know quite well that the body has ceased to function. But if we could very easily set up a controlled experiment in which we would get a message from dead Uncle Fred uh, and we could replicate this, we could do this in different locations with different people, if the information was reliable, we would in principle have evidence that the mind uh, can function separately from the body. That would start to lend some credibility to the idea that uh, the soul uh, can function separately from the body. Um, along those lines, there are people, and maybe this is something we'll talk about later in the program, who believe that certain subjective experiences, like, for example, uh, near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences, uh, suggest that the, the soul temporarily detaches from the body, floats about in the room, and can hear and see everything that's happening. Well, that, too, makes a very clear, testable prediction. Uh, and it's a prediction that's been tested. What people have done, for example, is they've placed laptop computers on top of uh, cabinets and closets on which they displayed very clear information, strings of numbers, uh, pictures, what have you. Now, imagine that a person lying unconscious on their bed, uh, not able to see the computer from the more restricted vantage point of their physical body, was nonetheless able, upon regaining consciousness, to precisely recite what they had seen on the computer. Well, that would be, now imagine that this could be done in a controlled environment, uh, replicated. If so, then that would be very good evidence that some mental functions uh, can be performed without, so seeing, perceiving, remembering, can be done without the body. So that would lend support to this idea of a detachable soul. So that's the first uh, set of ideas that makes the soul a scientific hypothesis, this idea of detachability uh, from you. the body, right? The, the second, uh, the second uh, idea is that because people believe that the soul is psychologically potent and you know, allows them to think certain thoughts, do certain things, uh, be conscious, uh, produce moral judgments, uh, what have you, then that must mean that the soul is capable of uh, causally interacting with the physical body. Now, if you're going to make a claim, implicit as it is in, in what you're saying, nonetheless, that uh, some kind of substance, whatever it is, is capable of causal interaction with ordinary matter, you're automatically making a claim about physics. I mean, physics, after all, is in the business of trying to understand how ordinary matter functions and what can impinge and influence it. Um, so, you know, physicists have very precise models of how ordinary matter functions. Uh, in fact, according to some physicists, we fully understand how ordinary matter behaves in the regime of everyday life. I have in mind Sean Carroll, for example. And so that means that if, if there were deviations from these predicted patterns, uh, we would be able to notice them in experimental settings. Uh, so that, too, again, makes the soul uh, claim a scientific, measurable claim. Gotcha. All right, we've got a hard break coming up. When we come back, you have come, you have teased from me several additional questions. So I'm going to ask you about some so-called uh, white crows. Uh, and, and <laughs> just in, you know, in reference to the to the three propositions you just put in front of us as a matter of science. We're speaking with Professor Julian Mussolino about his work and book, The Soul Fallacy. Again, this is a read you want to get your hands on, and you will enjoy regardless of what your beliefs are. And, and as I've said earlier, it is an inspirational read. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Julian Mussolino. Dot com. That's M-U-S-O-L-I-N-O.com. Now, we have a video for you of our guest speaking about the soul fallacy. So if you're not already in the chat room, now's the time to get on over there. And you can do that again by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. 
Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Just join us. We're chatting with Professor Julian Mussolino about his work and book, The Soul Fallacy. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Julian, that's J U L I E N, Mussolino, M U S O L I N O dot com. One word, Julian Mussolino dot com. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Now, your chosen music professor is My Way, sung by Elvis Presley. Please share with our audience why it is so special to you and how it informs us about who you are. Ah, that's a very good question. First, I'm very uh, glad and, and thankful that you played that song and just listened to it. It's absolutely lovely. Uh, for one thing, I love Elvis's voice. Uh, I think he's the best uh, person to sing that song, even though Frank Sinatra, of course, originally uh, sang it. It's a very uh, emotionally powerful song for me because um, I think it uh, speaks to aspects of my uh, earlier life. As uh, as you said uh, earlier in the introduction, I... Um, I grew up in France, and um, I then uh, moved to the U.S. when I was 24. And uh, this is not something that uh, I or many people around me would have expected. Uh, I have a very different life than most of my friends who stayed behind. And uh, 
in a sense, I really did things my own way, uh, that a way that's very different from what most people back there did. So that, that the song speaks a lot to me. It's very meaningful. It's very powerful. And uh, and like I said, I love the way that uh, Elvis sings it. I don't think there's any anything deeper to that, but that's just uh, it's a very personally meaningful song. It's also, by the way, it's also about if you listen to the lyrics, it's also about what happens at the end and when you reflect on your life. And so I think it's appropriate for discussions of, uh, of the soul and what uh, may or may not happen when we die. Well said. All right. Before the end of the break, or, uh, or before we went to break, I should say, I told you I was going to talk to you about white crows. Now, I yes. don't want to get I don't want to get off the subject of your book. We could spend an hour on white crows alone. Uh, you know, mind outside of the body. Well, how about action at a distance instead? I'm just going to yep. give you one example and see how you treat these white crows. Sure. Uh, you mentioned replication efforts that are going on or were going on at a number of hospitals uh, where on shelves out of the out of the visible range of anyone standing uh something like the computer with information would be sitting there could be a picture mm-hmm. something else yep. and people that rec- that reported they had a an out of body experience uh uh and usually these out of body experiences of this nature were OBEs accompanied by NDEs, but whatever the case was, if they had this experience, they would identify what it was. Now, this replication, as I understand at this point in time, hasn't been successful. No one has actually been able to do that. That that said, I have had on this show a number of qualified individuals. I'm going to take one. John Lermer is a physician, a surgeon, tells a story of a patient who had an OBE, mm-hmm. and he was declared dead. But then he came back, and he explained to John that during this NDE, he left the body, mm-hmm. and he initially raised up uh, toward the ceiling in the uh, surgical room. There he saw a coin sitting up high on the top of an arm of one of the pieces of equipment. I don't recall if it was a silver dollar or a half dollar, but it was it was a, yeah. a coin. Yeah. John then later with an attending nurse got a ladder and, and one of the members of the staff, you know, custodial people, I assume. And they climbed up there and sure enough, there was that coin. Now, I guess what I get faced with when you hear these things is, do I find the witness giving me the story as someone who's maybe just, uh, what, shading the truth because of (laughs) what they'd like to believe? Uh Or is this a genuine white crow? Where do you come down on those things, Professor? I don't think it's very hard to think about these cases. First, this is what is called... um, anecdotal evidence. Notice that Correct. this is a story that uh, somebody told you. Notice that uh, it was not done under control conditions. There's a reason that scientists actually do experiments. So the world is complicated. There are all kinds of things happening all the time. And we also know that people's senses and uh, memories are not reliable. And so that's why we don't usually give much credence to these individual uh, anecdotes, even if there, if there are tons of them. I and mean, one joke is that uh, in, within, the, within sciences, within sci- the, the sciences, is that the, the plural of um, anecdotes isn't data. Uh, so that's anecdotal evidence. But it, I think another way to think about this, Alden, is to think about this in the context of how likely it is that given what else we know, that the mind could really operate with, without the body or uh, in some kind of uh, detached fashion as, as described by these, uh, these uh, experiences. And the answer is extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily unlikely. Uh, so in other words, we, 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 we're not assessing these claims in a vacuum. We're assessing them against a background set of facts and knowledge that we have about um, how the world works. 
So it's a little bit like if I were to tell you something like this. So suppose I said to you, look, um, I have a friend. I know a friend. Uh, he's a very credible guy, you know, and um, and his he has a friend who's a great athlete. And he claims to me that his friend can run a marathon under 10 minutes. Now, we would have to ask how plausible is this claim, not based on how plausible is the person uh, telling us the story, but given what we know about human locomotion, given what we know about the length of a marathon, how plausible is it that a human being could run a marathon in under 10 minutes? And the answer is extraordinarily implausible. In the case of the soul, it's the same thing. The Given everything else we know, uh, it's extraordinarily implausible that these things actually would work the way it's described. So it's much more likely that the stories have been embellished or not remembered correctly or that there are all kinds of confounds in what uh, what the storyteller is uh, is trying to convey. Gotcha. Uh, I wonder how many cars can run 26 miles in 10 minutes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Okay. But that's in the case, yeah, in the case of the soul, that's really the proposition we have to entertain. I mean, if, if they really are souls, then we can take all of science as we know it. And I'm not joking, meaning all of physics, all of biology, all of psychology, all of neuroscience, and pretty much throw it out the window because it's all absolutely wrong. It's not really hard to decide in this case. You know, I think, and, and I'm, I want to explore this with you a little bit. Sure. Um, we, get, we get into this idea of ourselves, and I, I'm just going to think of it as the I. Yep. Your eye, my eye, you know, it, 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 the eye of ourselves uh, is, of course, underlying the sense of what we think of as consciousness, because we become conscious of ourselves, conscious of our motives, conscious of our desires, conscious, therefore, of plans, da, 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 da. And, and, you know, this gives rise to the notion that we make up our own mind. That, that there is such a thing as free will. And mm-hmm. uh, and I know, as you know, uh, <laughs> that, well, I'm going to use the words of, of uh, oh, well, highly improbable. I'll just put it like that. Uh-huh. What is your take on the on aspect of consciousness and free will? Uh-huh. Uh, that, that maybe we'll take free will first. Uh so the grand the illusion, question, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first question I ask when people ask me what I think about free will is, um, of course, what does one mean by free will? That's crucial. There's always, it's like the soul. When we talk about the soul, what do we mean exactly? So I think it's very helpful always to be very clear and precise about what it is that we're talking about. So in the case of free will, there is a traditional notion uh, that is called uh, libertarian free will, or sometimes a contra-causal free will. And it's the idea that is very intuitive to us human beings that somehow uh, we are uncaused causes. So in other words, that we can make things happen in the world, we can you know, move and pick up objects and talk and everything. And if you ask a person who believes in this kind of free will, well, what caused you to pick up your phone, for example, they would say, well, my will did. And if you ask them what caused your will to do it, they would say nothing. My will is uncaused, it's free. So that kind of free will, I think, is a non-starter because it flies in the face of everything we know about science. Uh, we, right. are, we know exactly what we're made of. We know the exact chemical and physical composition of human beings. We have very precise theories of uh, how the matter inside us works. And there's simply no room for... Uh, the sort of magical form of causation or of, of, of uncausation in that case. So I think that's a non-starter. Uh, so it's, it, it is the question of free will and determinism, uh, as, as, as you know. Um, so I think libertarian free will, now there are people who still believe in this, religious people believe in this. Uh, it also makes a lot of sense intuitively. And it's because we are not, uh, our conscious minds do not have access to what's going on uh, below the threshold of consciousness. So our conscious minds are a very poor guide 
to understanding how our minds work. <laughs> That's why we need uh, scientific psychology to tell us how the mind works. If mm -hmm. all it took was our conscious minds, then I'd be out of a job and uh, so would all my colleagues, right? Um, <laughs> but we, <laughs> we, we have a very powerful intuition as human beings that um, our conscious thoughts cause our actions and they seem to pop out of nowhere. And that's because we are not sometimes we we know why we're thinking of something because we just saw a picture or whatever. But very often we have thoughts popping in our minds and we have no idea where they came from. I'm sure this hap this has happened to you. You're sitting there and all of a sudden for, for absolutely no apparent reason, some thought about your childhood pops into your mind. Why did you think about that right at that at that moment? We don't know. And so it seems to us from the inside that these thoughts are uncaused, they just happen. And so if they're uncaused and yet they have causal powers, they make us do what we do, we have a very neat sort of intuitive account that, well, our will is this sort of uncaused cause. But again, that doesn't make much sense scientifically. So if you remove that from the equation, uh, what remains is, I, I like to call it flexible will. Uh, so I think we have flexible will in the sense that uh, unlike, say, rocks, uh, we can do many more things. We can make choices. Uh, we can uh, act based on our desires and goals and intentions. Uh, and that's that's all we need, really. I think we shouldn't worry about um, the lack of traditional free will. In fact, I think we should be very happy that we don't have that kind of free will, because if you think about it, it leads to completely nonsensical implications. You're absolutely right. Uh, I, I, you know, we're short on time here, and I've got so many more subjects that I'd like to talk to you about. But I think what we're probably going to have to do at this point is start boiling some things down. And maybe if you're sure. willing, Professor, we can get you back on this show. Sometimes an hour is just simply not enough time to flesh things out. Course, so I'm going to yeah. do some just quick ones with you you take your time i don't mean to hurry up but i want to i want to make <laughs> sure. sure we get the point of your book across okay science has disproved the traditional soul how is that uh, sir okay so i want to be a little careful about that statement um uh, again i don't want to sound professorial or you know nerdy but um strictly speaking science isn't really in the business of proving or disproving things. I mean, if you want proofs, you go to logic or mathematics. What science does is it provides evidence that either increases or decreases the probability that something is true or not true. So, uh, but I think that for all intents and purposes, yes, I think that science has shown that the soul is so extraordinarily unlikely that we could say it's shown that there's no such thing. But, but the caveat that I mentioned is, is important. Uh, it's we're, in science. We're never certain of anything, uh, either negative or positive. We just have different degrees of probability in our beliefs. But so we can we're very confident, put it this way, that there's no soul. But but it, that confidence is never 100 uh, percent. We're not you know, we don't have faith. We just believe in evidence. But yes, it uh, yes, it's for all intents and purposes. I think that science has shown that there's no soul. Okay, given that we don't have a soul, accepting that premise, you argue that we're better off without it, or that, you know, maybe I shouldn't yep. put it that way, but but we can live a very good life. Uh, yeah, we don't need to believe in a soul. Flesh that out for us. Mm -hmm. Well, there are two sort of sides to this question. One side is that, in fact, soul beliefs really get in the way of important questions. And I think they make our collective lives worse. That's the first side. And so you see this, for example, uh, when you look at questions at the edges of life. So for example, the, the question of abortion uh, that's rehashed every election cycle in the US. We're obsessed right. with that. Well, if you listen to people who oppose abortion, and if you look at data on why they oppose abortion, first you find out that uh, the strength of one's opposition to abortion is proportional to their level of religiosity. So the more religious people are, the more they tend to uh, uh, not like uh, abortion, be against abortion. And then if you look at why, 
Well, they tell you that it's because you're killing souls and they have this whole idea that, uh, you know, ensoulment is uh, immediate or et cetera, et cetera. So what the soul does there, it gets in the way of a debate that shouldn't be based on how many angels can uh, dance on the head uh, of a pin. Right. So that, that's a problem that uh, that we have for say that I'm not I mean, you can you can decide on the abortion question however you want if you present a good rational argument. But invoking the soul is a non-starter. Um, so that's one one area where I think it pollutes the um, conversation and makes things worse for women. Uh, the, gotcha. the other is at the, the, the end of life. So at the end of life, one question that. Uh, we can ask ourselves is should we as human beings have the right to die with dignity? In other words, and you know, yes, and you know professor, I'm going to let you let our audience dangle on that question. They're going to have to okay. go to your book. All right. We're Sounds out good. of time, but I want you to have 30 seconds or so to tell our audience where they can learn more about you, where they can get your book, any blogs you might have sure. Uh, sure. and so forth, please. Thank you. So people can go to, my website, uh, julianmussolino.com. Uh, if they want to get the book, The Soul Fallacy, they can go to uh, Amazon. They can go to bookstores. They can order it in uh, a paperback version or, uh, or Kindle or electronic version. And uh, you can also go to uh, Rutgers University, the psychology department, and you can click on my faculty profile. Uh, there'll be a link there to my personal website, and you can learn more about uh, what I do, the research I do, the classes I teach. And finally, <laughs> if you go on YouTube and you type in my name, you'll see a number of uh, interviews I've given, uh, videos, uh, public lectures, uh, interactions with other uh, scholars, so that you can do that too. All right. It's a wonderful book. Do go get it. The Soul Fallacy. We're out of time. I want to thank you, Professor. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. The views expressed on this program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and not necessarily those of KKNW, its management, or other advertisers. Contests are the responsibility of the hosts of this program and not KKNW. This is Alternative Talk 1150 AM, KKNW Seattle, and KNUC 98.9 HD3 Seattle.